Let's get started this evening, if you would. Stand with me. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 8 this evening and uh, for our scripture reading tonight. And we are, as I told you last week, we're started on the, um, the Great Tribulation. Last week, we ended up with all the songs that were being sang. And now we're about to get into that part where if you don't understand the symbols that we've been talking about, reading Revelation can get a little dicey. But you don't have to worry. I just sent out a real quick text a while ago. You can understand this and apply this. The first century church understood it and they applied it. You and I can understand it and apply it as well. So let's begin reading. When the Lamb, which is Jesus, broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. And then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. And then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar, threw it down upon the earth, and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. And then the seven angels with the seven trumpets began to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood was thrown down upon the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire, one-third of the trees were burned, and all the gra green grass was burned. And then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood, one-third of all the things living in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships were destroyed. And then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star was bitterness, or if you have uh, King James Version, you might read Wormwood right there, but Wormwood means bitterness. The name of the star was bitterness, and it made one-third of the water bitter, and people died from drinking the bitter water. And then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark, and one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Then I looked, and I saw a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, terror, 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 or woe, woe, woe to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Now, this vision continues right on into chapter 9, but I'm going to take advantage of the chapter break because what you see are, the, are four unique things happening in nature, and then you're going to see three things that happen to people. And so I, I'm going to take advantage of the break, and then next week I'll preach Revelation chapter 9, and we'll go through that and, and wrap this up. So you need to think of this as one continuous, but it would be a two-hour message tonight if I was to go ahead and teach it like that. And I don't think you want to do that this evening, okay? So let's pray together. I could do it, but I don't think you want to sit there and listen that long. Jesus, I love you. I thank you. Lord, I know that this sounds frightening, and it is. I know that this sounds terrifying, and it is. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see that for the people of God, this is a message of hope, and this is a message of strength and comfort that we can apply tonight. For it's in the precious and the holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. Am I good to go with this microphone yet? Yes? Okay, great. Then I can put this one down and... And I've got a little ringing, so maybe you want to fix that for me. And uh, we'll go from there. Well, first of all, let me just tell you how much I have enjoyed preaching. Tonight and then next Wednesday night, I'll be wrapping up Revelation for the summer, and then we'll pick back up it in September. I'll start my sabbatical the week after Father's Day, and so it'll just, it'll, uh, the week after Father's Day, so it will be a great place for us to, to stop with Revelation and pick it back up. And I thought I'd just give you a heads up. All of the messages online, plus the outlines are online if you want to re-listen to them. And then when I pick it back up in uh, September, I'm going to pick that back up with one message uh, on 
Revelation chapter 1 through 9. I'm going to sum it all up so we'll all be back on the same page together for the first nine chapters of Revelation just to give you some idea of where we're going here. The opening of the seventh seal is followed by silence. I just want you to listen to this. It's up on the screen, but just listen for a moment. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. There was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. Let that sink into you. There was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. And if I stood here for 30 minutes and didn't say a word, you would become very uncomfortable. If I stood here for 30 minutes and didn't say a word, you would undoubtedly think, what's wrong? And if I stood here for 30 minutes and read one verse, then I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit would begin to search hearts. Because there are times when we're silent. The Spirit of God can be so heavy that all of a sudden, while we're praying, we're just silent. To say anything would be almost irreligious. To say anything would be disrespectful. There are times when we are silent because of awe that takes place into our life. And there are a lot of people who speculate about what this 30 minutes of silence is. And so to maybe lighten it up for a little bit, I would never tell this joke, but it's an old joke. You've probably heard that's why there will be no women in heaven, because there was 30 minutes of silence in heaven. I would never tell that joke. I'm just telling you that that's an old joke that's out there. That's not true, of course. There'll be lots of women in heaven. And I hope you still love me, but I would never tell that joke. There will be 30 minutes of silence. And there are people who've speculated about God was stopping to wait to hear the prayers of his people. I I don't think that's what it means because our prayers go up before the Lord instantly. I think there are several things going on here that we wouldn't understand, but you got to remember the the first, the early church, which was a Jewish church, was primarily a Jewish church, they would have got this because there was a certain point in the sacrifices when everybody was silent before the Lord and the only sound to be heard was the bleeding, the bang of the, of the sacrificial lambs or the goats or whatever was going to be sacrificed, but people would be silent out of reverence. And so what you see here and what those Jewish people understood We are literally standing before the throne of God. That's what John wants you to get is is we're here before the throne. The silence, I believe, is God's answer to all of those arrogant and mocking people, especially those people who are writing books today to say there is no God, especially the people who are writing books today arrogantly challenging the authority of the Bible, especially the people who are writing books and saying that that all gods are the same. There's a new book out. I just finished reading the review of it. It's not even in print yet, but I just finished reading the review, and I can't wait to get a copy. And although the author is a Christian, he's not writing as a Christian author. He's not giving an apologetic or a defense. He is just coming full-blown onto the, the pure fallacies and the insanity. He's writing not as a theologian. He's writing as, a, as an evangelical scientist about how idiotic it is to not believe that there's a God. The reasoning that they're behind that there is a God. The, the thought behind that there's a God. And he, he doesn't write in respect to Christianity. He writes in respect to all religions of the world, though by his own testimony, he is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But when you hear people today in America and wealth and affluence mocking and saying there is no God, this silence, all of the earth will be silent before him. 
Zechariah chapter 2, 13, and there's other verses like this in the Old Testament. Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he is springing into action from his holy dwelling. And that's what you're about to see, that God is springing into action in a powerful way here. Paul will quote something similarly in the book of Romans where he'll say, let all the earth be silent before God. Let every other man be a liar, but let all the earth be silent before the Lord. These seven angels are given seven trumpets. And I think it's important that you, that you see that these angels are not blowing trumpets of their own accord. They're not, they're not going to do what they're going to do on their accord. But the wisdom, the knowledge of what they're about to do is given by God himself. God is the one here doing it. Now, we don't know that this is true, but... Judaism teaches that there are seven angels that stand before the Lord. Uriel, Raphael, Rachel, Michael, Sarel, Gabriel, and Remiel. The only two of those that we can tell you their names appear in the Bible are Michael and Gabriel. Those are the only two names that appear in the New Testament, but they also appear in the Old Testament as well. These seven angels are standing before the Lord, and yet one of them, one of them is called upon at a certain moment and certain time to stand there before the Lord and the lamb breaks the seal and something dramatic begins to happen. I want to walk you through that because I think this is probably the most, one of the most encouraging passages in all of the book of Revelation. It's the reason I said tonight there are things that are terrifying in this chapter, but when you understand what's going on, there's comfort and there is strength and there is power here. You see, the angel, this angel, and I happen to believe that he's Gabriel, and I'll get into that in for just a moment, but this angel stands in the presence of the Lord, and he offers the prayers of people like you and me throughout the ages. He offers them to God, Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. Then another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the little throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. I base my thought that it's Gabriel, and you're free to disagree with me on that. I don't necessarily buy in. I just bring it up because you will see in some old churches, you will see these seven angels painted. You will see in some old churches because of the influence of Judaism. You'll read about it sometimes in the ancient church fathers, these seven angels. That came right out of Jewish tradition. But in the book of Luke, chapter 1 and verse 19, a verse we read at Christmas time, the angel answered and said unto him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and bring this good news. I am Gabriel who stands, and this angel along with the others were standing in the very presence of God. Here's what's important about this, and here's why I'm really stressing this for just a moment. The altar of incense was just outside the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's important that you see the imagery because, again, all of the Jewish people would have got this. And if you've ever looked at in your study Bibles a drawing of the tabernacle or a drawing of the temple, if you've ever looked at that and studied that, you know that when you, you come into the temple, that there is this great altar of incense where the, I mean, this great altar of sacrifice where the sacrifices were made before the Lord. And you go past that altar of sacrifice and you come to the altar of incense that's before the Holy of Holies. It's in the holy place, but not the Holy of Holies. And as you go in there, you're covered. In the tabernacle, you were covered by a tent. And in the temple, you were covered by this magnificent building that Solomon built and then that Herod rebuilt later on. You were covered. And the smoke of the incense would rise up and hover there in the tabernacle or in the temple. The smoke of the incense would hover up before the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And that altar of incense was there representing the prayers of God's people. The coals from this altar came from the altar of incense. In other words, the, the prayers come after the sacrifice. Our prayers are made holy because of the sacrifice of the animals that were made in the temple or in the tabernacle. But in the New Testament, 
Our prayers have been made holy because the sacrifice has been made once and for all by the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. The cross is our altar of sacrifice. And we go to the Holy of Holies and we come now. In the Old Testament days, I've told you this before, how the high priest, they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he had a heart attack in there or if he went in there without confessing his sins, he would die in the presence of God. And no one but the high priest could go in there without being slain by the presence and the power of God and they would pull him out by this rope. But here you have this altar of incense where all of the the prayers of God's people are sanctified and they are made powerful because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And this angel takes the prayers of God's people. He goes to the altar of incense and he gathers some of the coals from the altar of incense and he does something powerful and dramatic. He flings that down upon the earth. And you and I are participating in that tonight. And when we come to this altar to pray in a few minutes, you and I are participating in it. These early believers, they understood that. Their lives were in danger. We've already read as we preach through those seven churches, we've already read about the persecution, how some of them had died already. We've already seen all of that. These people were living this, and yet they were being told that their prayers were accomplishing something in the presence of God. Let me give you an Old Testament picture of this in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. They presented the offerings on the altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense, and they performed all the other duties related to the most holy place. You've heard about the power of prayer many times. A book that I've recommended to you to read before by E.M. Bounds, The Power of Prayer. But tonight, I want you to know the power of prayer, prayer shapes history. Prayer shapes history. God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. The will of God will be done, but you and I have been praying a prayer since we were children. Ramanita sang it here two weeks ago. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come upon this earth. The kingdom hasn't come yet. The kingdom is emerging through us. But as we pray, we are absolutely shaping history. Eugene Peterson commenting on this said, when conflicts, he was commenting on this in the book of Revelation, when conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn were ranged against them. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and they had no prestige. They had none of the things that we think we need to shape history today. There was a historical moment yesterday. President Trump, a leader that we thought we would never see in the United States, I think you would agree he's a pretty unusual president. We've never had one like that before. Met with another pretty unusual leader, the leader of a, of a, of a cult nation that has starved his people and murdered his people and persecuted Christians. And although they're an officially atheistic nation, you know, they have all, they surround them with all the trappings of divinity. These two unusual men sat down yesterday and I just watched and going, do we realize what kind of history is being made here? But they're talking about nuclear war. They're talking about nuclear bombs. They're talking about things that are way beyond any of our, prayer, our pay grades here. But they are not above our prayer grades because what they think they can accomplish through diplomacy, you and I can see mighty things happen to the pulling down of strongholds if we pray in faith together in the name of Jesus. But the problem is, for some reason, Western Christians don't want to pray. They love to fellowship. They love to eat together. They love to come together for teaching. But there's this thing where I just recently read where a Christian pastor wrote, he says, I'm going to be honest. I hate to pray. I don't like to pray. So I don't pray very much. I just figured Jesus' prayer covered it all. Friends, let me tell you something. If you don't enjoy talking to Jesus now, you're not going to enjoy talking with him in heaven. And that doesn't mean you've got to pray three and four hours a day. But if you're like me, if you're like Becky, 
If you're like some of the others that have told me this in the church, we just kind of walk through the whole day going, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, what do you think about this? Jesus, what should I do? He's always with us, so why can't we always talk with him? I'm not impressed by whether you spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes, or 30 minutes. It's do you walk with him and have that fellowship? This angel stands and takes the prayers of God's people. <laughs> he takes those coals from the altar of incense that you have to pass past the altar of sacrifice for. This angel is there, and I will remind you again what I told you two weeks ago. The angels are here to serve the people of God. We don't go looking for these angels. We don't go trying to find out their names. That's not the key. The fact is, your prayers are before the throne of God. That's what I want you to see tonight. Your prayers are before the throne of God, and someday, somewhere, at some time, all the earth is going to be silent because we prayed. All of heaven is going to be silent. Let me take you back to one of the angels in the book of Daniel. Just in a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and knees. And the man that was an angel said to him, Daniel, you are very precious to God. So listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up for I have been sent to you. When he, st when he said this to me, I stood up still trembling. And then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you begin to pray for understanding and humble yourself before God, your request has been heard in heaven. Would you underline that if that verse is in your outline tonight? Your request has been heard in heaven. You see, we are in a time of tribulation, but Daniel was in a time of captivity. We are in a time of tribulation in Romans chapter, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 8, but Daniel was in captivity. Daniel and his people had been carted away. Jerusalem was in ruins. Jerusalem had been burnt to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar brutally murdered families and took away the, what he would have called the creme de la creme of society. Daniel had already had his life threatened so many times, but he never gave up on prayer. And because of this vision he'd had, his prayers were before the Lord. But one of the things that we learn is, is that this angel came to him and says, listen, I have been fighting the principalities and the powers of evil in the air. We'll look at that next week in Revelation chapter 9. And it's important that you hear that message. We'll look at that next week. But Michael has come to my, there's something connected with our prayers. And this is one of those rare glimpses that we get and by the way, let me say to you, this is one of only two glimpses that we get in all the Bible, so we really need to stop and humble ourselves for a moment. I'm not Daniel, you're not Daniel, and I'm not the Apostle John, and you're not the Apostle John. But what I am grateful for is that I am a child of the King, and my prayers are before Him in heaven tonight. And that's what we have to remember. Your prayers matter just as much as anybody else's. I remember telling Dr. Addison one time, he was talking about spiritual warfare, and I said, oh, I fight the little bitty demons. I fight the munchkin demons. You fight the big ones. That's the reason I work for you. He goes, what are you talking about? I says, you have to handle all the big things, you know. I'm working with our youth of our churches. I'm working with our youth pastors. I'm dealing with the little bitty ones. I said, that's the reason I work for you, so all, all the big ones will come and fight against you. And he started laughing. There is a humility that sometimes can help us to laugh in the face of the devil. And that's what you're seeing here, is you're seeing the power of hell begin to be mocked. And when we look at Revelation chapter 9, and you look at this chapter tonight, if you're not a Christian, you have every right to be terrified. But if you're a Christian, you have every right to be comforted. Before I move on and we look at these first four of the seven trumpets, let me talk to you for just a moment about three different types of tribulation. There are three different types of tribulation. First of all, there's the type that I call the trials of everyday life. You know, you and I both have them, the trials of everyday life. Somebody's trying to hurt you at work. Somebody's trying to gossip about you. You know, your, your child is, is being rebellious. Those are the trials of everyday life. Teresa, your house burns down. Those are the trials of everyday life. They pale in comparison to eternity, but they're major when you're going through them. They're major when you've got a son or daughter that's walking in rebellion. They're major when you've got somebody trying to threaten your job. I mean, they're major when we're facing them. 
but they pale in comparison to the long term. Then the Bible speaks about, and we're talking about that in Romans 8, excuse me, Revelation 8 and 9. I've got Romans on the brain tonight. There's the great tribulation, that time that comes upon the earth after the rapture of the church. And then, if you've read your Bible at all, you're going to be very familiar with this phrase. Then there's that time at the end, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Just when the tribulation is over, you think it's all over. It's not all over yet, but there's the day of the Lord, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. So those are three types of tribulation that you need to keep in mind. The trials of everyday life, the epistles address those a lot, the great tribulation. Paul addresses those in uh, First and Second Thessalonians. He also addresses that again in the book of Romans just briefly. Then he mentions that, and then John writes about it in Revelation and also in the epistles of John. And then there's the, the great tribulation in the day of the Lord. So let's look at the first four of the seven trumpets. The thing I want you to see about the, these first four, and I've tried to put them in a way that you'll have just one fill-in per each trumpet, but I've tried to put them in a way that you could kind of just have a, four sentences. You could grid it if you wanted to. You could put it in an Excel chart if you wanted to. Um, it won't convert for us to use on the screen here, so I just kind of put them in a sentence. But if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament plagues that happened to Egypt, then you're going to recognize what's happening here. Again, the early church would have got this. These judgments remind us of all the plagues of Egypt, and you can read Exodus 7 through 12 to understand more about that. I tell all of you that have gone through Discovering Woodland with me, if you want a good, entertaining, you can still get it. I checked on Amazon the other day, uh, DVD about it. Um, get the Prince of Egypt that Walt Disney put out. The Prince of Egypt, it's an animated, don't ex- expect a, you know, a, a Ten Commandments type of deal. It's an animated deal. However, with those plagues and with the, um, uh, the Passover, Disney sought out evangelical pastors and conservative Orthodox Jewish rabbis to be sure they got all those details right. So your children can watch that. You can let them know this is a, this is a, is a historical fictional story. There is truth in there, but, you know, we don't know any of the things about Moses and the young Pharaoh as they're growing up together. But you, if you want to watch something sometime to get a, just a visual in your mind. The seven trumpets are divided into four and three. The first four bring devastation to nature. If you remember last week, I pointed out to you how that Uh, The four corners of the earth, we talked about that. We talked about the four winds. We talked about the four angels. We talked about the four horsemen, how all that symbolism has to do with nature. The first four bring devastation to nature, and then the last three, the ones that we'll look at next week, they're more directly aimed at uh, at man. Richard Niebuhr, or Niebuhr as some people say, Richard Niebuhr made a very interesting statement in a book he wrote on sin and on the cross. Richard Niebuhr was the brother of Reinhold Niebuhr. You hear his brother quoted more because he was more of a liberal. Richard was a conservative, orthodox Christian. He wrote these words, a God without wrath brought me without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without the cross. And what's he saying there is when people try to take away the the efficacy of the cross, as I pointed out to you last week, when people try to sanitize Christianity of the blood, when people try to take away the blood, you take away the need for salvation. You don't often know some of the things, and I mentioned this in the third message I think I did in the series, that sometimes Pastor Rick and I deal with of people who get into doctrinal error, and we try, sometimes we can help them get back on the path, and sometimes we can't. But never, ever forget The glory of the church is in the cross of Christ. Paul says, I will choose to glory in nothing except for the the cross of Christ. And if you look at some of my earlier Bibles, I wrote, why didn't he say the resurrection of Christ? Why didn't he say the return of Christ? Why didn't he say the power of Christ? Well, this chapter helps you to understand it because without the sacrifice of Christ, there is no resurrection, there is no Pentecost, there is no rapture, there is no power in prayer, okay? So that's, that's the point that we're trying to bring out here. All four of these plagues have the same pattern. An angel blows a trumpet. 
The plague is described and, re- and the results that are measured in all in terms of one-third destruction. So that's, this is, this is remember I told you I'll always try to give you how to look at the symbolism. Trumpet number one is a judgment that falls upon the earth. This judgment consists of hail, fire, and blood, and incineration of one-third of the earth. Now this, you got to track with me because I'm telling you this is terrifying when you look at it and you don't understand the power of what's happening. You don't understand the Old Testament plagues that happened to Egypt. All of this fits together. In Revelation chapter 8 and verse 7, now this is, this is after the prayers of God's people with the incense have been flung to the earth. The first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth and one-third of the earth was set on fire and one-third of the trees were burned and all the grass was burned. People have asked me before, how do you think that would happen? I, I don't know how it will happen. I think this is a, a description. I don't know if it's a literal or metaphorical description. However, it's a real description of a real event that's going to happen. And when I say I don't know if it's literal or metaphorical, I don't know if it's literally blood that's coming down. I tend to think it's a metaphorical description, but it's very, very real. If the plagues of Egypt were real, and nobody questions those, we can find that in Egyptian history. If the plagues of Egypt were real, these judgments are very real. And so we don't question these judgments. In my mind, I tend to think that this is probably going to be some sort of of super uh, powerful electric thunderstorm that's going to strike the earth. In my mind, that's what I, I tend to think is going to happen. But let's go back to Exodus chapter 9, verse 23. So Moses lifted his staff towards the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flash towards the earth. And the Lord sent a tremendous hailstorm against all the land of Egypt. And never in all the history of Egypt had there been a storm like that with such devastating hail and continuous lightning. It left all of Egypt in ruins. The hail struck down everything in the open field, people, animals, and plants alike. Even the trees were destroyed. The only place without hail was the region of Goshen where the people of Israel lived. And this is a scripture you've heard me often reference before about tribulation. Is that God always protects his people during the times of tribulation. You know, some of us may go through the fire. Some of us may go through the flood. Some of us, as we looked at last week, we may give our lives. But whether we die or whether we live, we will all stand in the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this storm that hit Egypt was so powerful, there is coming a storm that will be bigger than Egypt. My personal thought, and you can agree with, disagree with me on this if you want to, my personal thought is this is not a global storm. My personal thought, this is going to happen right in that, that uh, uh, Fertile Crescent, Asia, Northern Africa, Mediterranean basis and basin. I'll give you my reason for that in just a minute, but I think you'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute. I could be wrong. I'm just telling you that, again, you know, and I'll give you three reasons at the end of this message, you know, how you look at these things. What you need to know is there's going to be something cataclysmic that's going to happen in this one. Trumpet number two, the sea. The sea is where a fiery mountain is cast into the sea. There is pollution. One-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the sea creatures die, and one-third of the ships are destroyed. The sea, I believe the early church would have saw as the Mediterranean Sea. That's such a part of their life. All of the commerce that Rome did, all of the ships and all the ships that came from other parts of the world trading with Rome. The Mediterranean Sea has been the, 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 the site of some of ancient history's most fantastic battles that have ever happened right there. And so I think... This is speaking of the Mediterranean Sea. Again, I could be wrong. It could be universal. Let me read the verse of Scripture, and then I'll try to help you see why I'm saying that just a little bit. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea, and one-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all the things living in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. In Exodus 7, verse 20, the whole Nile River turned to blood. It is, God bless you, it is not impossible for this sort of thing to happen. We saw just 
three years ago, was it? When Toledo had the red algae that shut the city of Toledo's water supply down. Our family had been looking forward. We were going home for a break, for a vacation, and we had talked about for a whole week, we're going to leave home, we're going to stop at Chick-fil-A and get breakfast in Toledo, Ohio. We pulled off, everybody was happy, and there was a sign it was closed due to whatever the water problems were, and so when I found out, their entire water supply was poisoned because of this algae that came up in Lake Erie. Turned out later to be the product of massive hog farms that are in Ohio and they're draining into the rivers and then draining right into Lake Erie and cause the algae bloom. This particular thing, it just kind of helped you see why this is not impossible. People tell me this is impossible. It's not impossible. A fiery mountain cast in the sea the Romans would have understood it, the Greeks would have understood it, the Northern Africans would have understood it, and the Jews would have understood it. Those that lived in Syria would have understood it. Because Mount Vesuvius was still very, very real in the minds of the people. And that explosion that we still go to Pompeii to see. We're seeing right now the effect, we don't know just yet, the effect that the, the volcanoes that are having we know that volcanoes that have gone off in the past have affected world climates for 20 to 30 years. Some scientists say 50 years. We see cities and villages being destroyed. There are some, I was watching the Science Channel one night and I wanted to see because they said, could this be the, the, the prophecy of Revelation? A meteorite came down and striking the earth and doing something to the sea, killing the wildlife, destroying navies and everything. And then some scientists got up, you know, in his very educated way of saying 55 million years ago, a meteorite crashed into the Pacific Ocean and that's how we have the Yucatan Peninsula and the North America. And they just went through all of this stuff you know, we make movies of science fiction about this. I just want to say it again. These things are real, and they're going to happen. Trumpet number three, the fresh waters and rivers, a star named bitterness poisoning one-third of fresh water, and many people die from the water. Revelation 8, 11, the name of the star was bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. And when they came to the oasis, and now at Exodus 15, when you read this, you can't help but think about what happened with, as Moses was leading the children of Israel out, when they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink, so they called the place Marah, which means bitter, and then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for the help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. Now, in this case, the sweet water becomes bitter. But Moses took the bitter water that was poisonous and by throwing a piece of wood into it, and most every theologian that I've ever read believes this is also a prophetic indication of the cross of Christ. How that that cross, that wood upon which he died has taken the bitterness of our experiences and turned them sweet. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? I mean, that's... <laughs> Trumpet number four is the sky. The striking of heavenly bodies, the darkness of one-third of the sun, moon, stars, and affecting one-third of day and night. Now, this is the hardest one for me to wrap my little mind around. But Revelation 8, 12 says, Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark, and one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Now, there are any number of things that could happen there. We don't know what's going to happen in our universe. God could use natural causes or God could cause it to happen. God could use natural causes at his timetable or God could just simply cause it to happen. But you need to see and understand this will happen. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, lift your hand toward heaven and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick you can feel it. And Moses lifted his hand to the sky and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. And during all that time, the people could not see each other and no one moved, but there was light as usual where the people of Israel lived. 
Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and verse 31. And I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. I read one prophecy writer who says that he believes this is going to happen because of a nuclear explosion. I don't believe that. I don't believe that mankind is going to destroy themselves. And you say, Pastor, look at, and I I know, I consider myself to be well-read, deeply read on these subjects. After 40-something years of giving my life to this, I've read about how Russia used, the Soviet Union used uh, nuclear power. They would take bombs to, to move earth with, to create lakes with for hydropower. How they would take those places in Kazakhstan and parts of the Soviet Union and the water that they, that filled those ponds still 50 to 60 years later, they're still 100 times higher in um, the radioisotopes, topes, and silesium and things that are there. One of those lakes dried up during a drought, and when the winds came blowing across, it blew all that silesium and plutonium out of the dry lake bed and has poisoned the land mass. They say for up to 200 miles around, nothing will grow there. People with health problems. Those were things that were happening in the 50s and the 60s. During the, it was truly an evil empire. Things that they did to people and had livestock drinking this water and human beings drinking this water because they thought they could take nuclear power. And before we shake our heads too much, the United States actually experienced with that, experimented with that for two years, I believe it was, and then found out you just couldn't control the contamination that happened. But what they say has happened to the groundwater in many parts of Russia today, in Kazakhstan, for instance, is they just have no idea how much of the groundwater is actually poisoned. So these things are not beyond belief. But I don't believe that's how it's going to happen because the Bible says specifically, God is going to do this. This is going to be not like in your insurance clause, an act of God. This is going to be the work of God. Let me wrap up tonight's teaching because I want to help you before we get into Revelation chapter 9 because all of this is prophecy. This is, this is where I talk to you about different ways to interpret prophecy. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 13, I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, 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 woe, woe, woe to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Now, I've heard some people, I heard this one on TV, some guy saying, you know, if you Google YouTube, you can find this, saying this is the United States. The United States figures into prophecy and this is the eagle as the symbol of the United States and therefore the eagle will be protecting Israel. That is a bunch of baloney. Capital B, capital A, capital L, O-N-E-Y. Is that how you spell baloney? I can spell Oscar Mayer, I can't spell baloney. The eagle was an unclean bird, okay? And what you have here is a clear indication of God calling people to repentance. Remember, prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Prophecy, I, last week, I, and I've already told you how, you know, we believe that the church is going to be raptured out of here before this happens. But it's, there's still going to be people who give their hearts to Christ. Remember when we looked at Revelation chapter 7 last week? The Lord stopped everything and says, do not, do not go yet until I have marked the heads of my servants. Remember how we looked at that, the 144,000 and how that's a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a symbolic number? There will be people getting saved during the great truth. They will recognize what God is doing is unmasking Satan. What God is doing is unmasking evil. What God is doing is exposing the fallacies of this world. When we go about blind in our trespasses and sin, we sin awfully against God. When we go about God smug and satisfied, we make our arrogant boast. We blaspheme against the Lord. We say that God's way of living, God's idea for life is, is not as good as our idea of life. God bless us with freedom of choice and look what we've done with freedom of choice. You're looking at a world in chaos. Now, this is important. And honey, if you'll come on up the piano while I close this. You're looking at a world in chaos. And when I first moved to Detroit, I've got to be honest with you, I've been in war zones. 
more than once, more than twice. When I moved to Detroit, I could not believe the chaos of downtown Detroit. And then when WXYZ, I believe it was, and and the bridge put together that 12th in Claremont of 50 years of the Detroit riots, suddenly I understood how a city that was called the Paris of the Midwest, we have world-famous buildings in downtown Detroit designed by some of the greatest architects in the world. We are the arsenal of democracy here in Detroit. Your parents and grandparents helped win the war right here in Detroit. And in a snap thing that happened where things had been brewing for years in Detroit at a speakeasy, over the next few days, chaos ruled and reigned. People died. Businesses were burnt to the ground. Homes were burnt to the ground. This is America. The military was called in to protect the people of Detroit. Chaos ruled and reigned. A third of the businesses were not covered with insurance. And the damage then in those dollars was $132 million. And that's the reason that so many buildings and businesses couldn't be rebuilt. It's because people never expected the chaos to happen. Peace and prosperity can be lost in a moment. And those of you that were alive and living here during that time, you've told me. Some of you have driven me down where you lived and where you grew up. And Becky and I were just talking to another couple this week. How often we've heard this phrase since we've been your pastor. Oh, pastor, oh, Becky, I wish you could have seen Detroit when. I wish you could have seen Detroit when. And we're still recovering from that chaos. I'm telling you, these things will happen. But right now is the time for you and I to pray, to love people, to evangelize, to go into the four corners of the earth to reach lost people for Jesus Christ. There's no price too great to pay. So how do you do all of this? Well, first, you've got to distinguish between prophetic revelation, prophetic interpretation, and prophetic speculation. Let me talk to you about those three. You see, prophetic revelation is that Jesus is going to return and rapture his church. Somebody should have said amen right there. How many of you would agree with that statement? Jesus is going to rapture his church. Yeah. That's clearly taught. I'm very proud of you. I feel very good as your pastor now. I've taught you well. He's going to return. There's a catching away. But now there's prophetic interpretation. I've given you my reasons of why I believe he's going to come before the tribulation. But then I have some people that I love. They love God just as much as I love God. They are good, good people. But they believe he's going to come in the middle of the tribulation. Some of them believe he's going to come after the tribulation. And they love God. I I told you just a few weeks ago, what happens if I'm wrong? I'm going to go, whoops. You know, what else are you going to do? Whoops, I gave you, I've got plenty of biblical ground, solid ground to stand upon. I believe he's coming before the tribulation. But people I love, I don't have any problem with them. I love them. And that's the reason why you need to study your Bible carefully. Get a good study Bible. Get one of those those real good uh, biblical commentaries that you can use alone. And I'll be happy to recommend some to you if you if you're ever interested in that. But then there's prophetic speculation. And now there's nothing wrong with speculation. Speculation means to think, to reason. I can hear my daddy saying right now, well, I speculate it's going to cost about this much. That meant he hadn't really worked it out, but he had speculating on it. That's just his reasoning, and generally he was pretty right. I mentioned Dr. Addison a while ago. 
He said, I don't need anybody bringing me a ream of computer paper in when I can sit down with a pencil and write it down on just a page and I've got it all done. He was speculating. Now, how many of you have read the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye? That's speculation. Okay? There's a reason it's sold in the Christian fiction aisle. <laughs> now, I think, there's a, I think it's like the Prince of Egypt. It's based upon some truths, but that's just speculation of how it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, I'm sure if Tim was still alive today, he would probably write a little bit different since the internet and computers have gone a lot further than what they've gone when he wrote the book. But do I believe there are going to be people on airplanes raptured? Yes, sir. <laughs> do I believe there are going to be cars where people are driving and the trumpet sounds a bit? Yes, sir. And if you disagree with me, it's okay if the Lord leaves you here. You can say, whoops, I was wrong. He's gone. No, I, I think you'll still go. But the point is, we don't need to get into speculation. It's okay to read those books. It's okay to be entertained by them. But when you talk to people, you want to be sure that you know what prophetic revelation is. Jesus is coming. And these things that I pointed out to you tonight, this is revelation. I can't tell you how it's going to happen, but I can tell you this is going to happen. And I've tried to give you four scenarios for how it would happen. But he closes by going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you have loved ones that aren't saved? Do you have family members that aren't saved? Do you have children that aren't saved? Do you have grandchildren that aren't saved? Do you have neighbors that you love that aren't saved? Do you have numbers, neighbors that you don't like that aren't saved? We need to be praying for them that they come to know Jesus because this time will come upon the earth will be a time that the world has never known before. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand and come and spend a few minutes in the altar and let's pray together tonight. Hallelujah. Just bring your notes with you and Let's understand this has not just been written to terrify us, but to motivate us to pray. We can shape history while we pray tonight. Hallelujah. We can shape history while we pray tonight. Pray for North Korea. I'm actually happy that this engagement is happening. This brutal regime has murdered and starved their people and if this somehow becomes a crack that brings that brutal regime down let's pray for North Korea tonight let's pray because for the first time if the newspapers are reporting it correctly our traditional allies are at odds with us at odds with us or at least at odds with our president so let's pray that somehow or another that this, this union, this, this allied powers that we've had that has helped maintain the peace in Europe. People forget how often Europe has been torn apart by war. And nothing would make our enemies happier than to see NATO and to see the G7 fractitious and fighting with one another. There are so many nationalistic forces that are rising up. Hungary is battling tonight with some of the ugliest white supremacist forces that have rose. I love Hungary, but they're battling some things tonight. Let's pray for this evening for the protection of our missionaries and pastors and churches in these lands that are going to figure so predominantly in that northern Africa, Asia, Fertile Crescent, southern Europe area. Next week, we're going to look at how an army of 200 million men could be easily raised up according to the prophecy of Revelation chapter 9 coming from the east. And let's pray for the church. I believe with all of my heart that one of the reasons that America has experienced such favor, that Canada has experienced such favor, is because of the evangelical church. It's been because of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been the sending of missionaries. 
But tonight, as I preach to you, there are more evangelical Christians in third world countries than there are in the United States and Canada combined this evening. We need to pray for revival in the United States and Canada again. Hallelujah. Lord, I thank you for the cross of Jesus. I thank you for the blood of Christ that was shed. And long, Lord, before we get to the altar of incense, we come to that altar of sacrifice. I thank you for the blood that cleanses us from all of our sins and iniquities. And I thank you, Lord, that as we come to that altar of incense, that the veil has been written to, that your presence, your Holy Spirit, Pentecost has come, and the presence of God dwells within the hearts and the lives of your people today. We are kneeling in the presence of God tonight. We are standing in the presence of God. This is holy ground this evening. And Jesus, we walk not as people who get to pray 10 or 15 minutes a day, but as people who walk continuously in your presence. And so, Lord, we pray for what may appear to be such bigger, bigger issues than what we are people. That, God, we make our confession that all of history is under your control tonight. We pray for the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, Lord. We pray for the believers in Syria, in Israel, in Iran, in Iraq, Lord. We pray, God, for the believers in Egypt and Sudan. Lord, we pray for the believers that are in danger in Turkey, for pastors, a NATO country that is imprisoning pastors, Lord, to use them as bargaining chips, Lord. We hear, we see, Lord, winds rolling like we've never seen before. God, we pray tonight. Lord, we thank you for the blessings and the prosperity of the West. But we repent of our sins as nations, Lord. We repent of our arrogance and our blasphemies. We repent, Lord Jesus, of our pride and our full stomachs, Lord, without acknowledging that every good and perfect gift cometh from the Father which is above. And, oh, Lord, we pray for revival. We pray, Jesus, for pastors and missionaries and Christian workers, Lord, God, to go to the four corners of the earth, that you would send us out in the name of Jesus. We thank you that though that time has not come, we are still in that special dispensation of grace, Lord. We're anointed and full of your Holy Spirit. Lord, the demons tremble when we pray in the name of Jesus. The powers of hell tremble when we pray in the name of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that the trumpet hasn't sounded yet and that Christ hasn't come for his church yet. And tonight, Lord, we have the power of God at work in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. I thank you, Lord, that through churches like ours, that you, Lord, can save our communities. You can send revival. Start with us, I pray. Pray. Give us a burden and a passion to pray like never before. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And I pray, Lord, you will make us wise. God, when it comes to prophetic revelation, help us, Lord, to be willing to put our money in the bank. Jesus, you will come. You will come for your church. Lord Jesus, we thank you that whether we live or whether we die, we will stand before the Lord, not because of any good work we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. <laughs> Lord, help us to study and apply ourselves to prophetic interpretation. And Lord, to apply the lessons that we learn. Help us to apply those lessons, O oh Lord Jesus, 
If the prayers of the church are as powerful as Revelation 8 makes them, then God, may we not only sing the songs of Revelation 7 and Revelation 4, but may we pray the prayers of Revelation 8. And Lord, I thank you for those like Larry Burkett who wrote a prophetic novel, for people like Chuck Colson that wrote a prophetic novel. Lord, for people like Tim LaHaye who wrote a whole series. I thank you for those that write Christian fiction. Use them to stir our imaginations. Use them, Lord, to stir our faith and our hope. There's nothing like a good story, Father. But I pray we'll not build our faith on fiction. We'll build our faith on the eternal Word of God. For it's in Jesus' name I ask and pray tonight. Amen and amen. Hallelujah.